Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm Claire Navarro. So imagine you're at a party, say with coworkers or friends of friends who you don't know that well. Unless you're one of those people who enjoys making others uncomfortable, custom says that there are two topics that you probably should not bring up, religion and politics. At the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics here at Washington University in St. Louis, on a daily basis, professors choose to totally ignore that advice. Here on Hold That Thought, for the next few weeks, we'll be following their lead and taking a close look at religion, politics, and the many ways that these two subjects overlap. To kick off the series, I had the chance to talk with Marie Griffith. I'm Marie Griffith. I'm the director of the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics. As if religion and politics aren't controversial enough, in her research, Griffith adds a third topic to the mix, sex. Her forthcoming book is titled Christians, Sex, and Politics, an American History. As she'll describe, connections between faith, sexuality, and American politics existed long before the current political debates over issues like same-sex marriage and abortion. Well, really, sex has been a focus of American religion and politics for decades. I would first say that, and we could even take it back into the 19th century. We could really take it back into the 18th century even, and to the Puritans in some ways. In this long history, Griffith has recently been focusing on the 20th century. In the early decades of the 1900s, debates raged about a topic that still pops up in both religion and politics today. In the 1920s, one of the big issues that I write about in this book, and really a major issue of the time, had to do with birth control. That's right, birth control. The pill wasn't approved for contraceptive use until 1960, but other forms of birth control existed. So where does religion fit in? So the first thing I would say is that prior to the 1920s, almost no Christians in the United States were really in favor of birth control, at least church leaders. Now, plenty of couples practiced it. We know that because we know what the birth rates were. And, you know, one can deduce there were a lot of homemade remedies for preventing, you know, conception. Um, but church leaders, it wasn't an issue that the churches had ever felt they should or needed to address. It was just really looked down on and certainly not talked about um, in this kind of Victorian, you know, still a very Victorian era. But then came the 1920s. By this time, Margaret Sanger, a name you probably recognize, had become a public figure. Margaret Sanger had really emerged as a, a socialist activist, as an important women's rights activist in the 19-teens, 1910s. And by 1921, she had founded uh, a very important early birth control organization. That organization was called the American Birth Control League. It advocated for the legalization of contraception and asserted that every woman should have the right to choose when or whether to have children. This was back in 1920, remember? And they held uh, a meeting in New York's town hall in November of 1921. This meeting went over a long week with experts from all over the world, from certainly from US and England and, and parts of Europe. And she was scheduled to deliver the culminating address on November 21st in the evening uh, on the topic, birth control, is it moral? At this time, there were lots of ideas floating around about why birth control should or should not be used. 
Some people argued that birth control would help control overpopulation. Many at that time also believed in eugenics, or the idea that humankind could be improved if certain types of people did not have as many children. Now, eugenics is understood to be problematic, extremely racist, generally bad, but at the time it was a real argument in favor of birth control. But Margaret Sanger's final speech wasn't going to address those types of claims. She was talking about morality here. And as she was about to find out, debates about morals tend to get people fired up. When she got to the meeting hall, the doors had been locked against her by the police uh, who would not let her speak. She tried to speak anyway. She was arrested and taken to prison. And the streets were lined with hundreds of men and women in, in her favor who sang, My Country Tis of Thee, as she was escorted off to jail. So you might be wondering, why exactly was Sanger arrested? Even if there are lots of people who may have disagreed with her, who would have benefited from her silence so much to go to that extreme? This is where the church, specifically the Catholic Church, enters the picture. It turned out the police had been working with figures, authorities in the Roman Catholic Church in New York, and so there was this sort of church-police uh, collaboration that really angered non-Catholics in the U.S. And it wasn't just non-Catholics who were involved in the birth control debate who were paying attention. News of Sanger's arrest filled the media. The newspaper coverage of this event is very important because they really sympathized with her over and against the police authorities. This became a story about churchmen bullying this feminist uh, woman. It became seen as a free speech issue. And gradually, through uh, those kinds of associations, birth control kind of grew in favor uh, in, in the news coverage and across the country. So this event became a turning point in how the country thought about birth control. And people who considered themselves religious were part of that changing tide. By the 30s, most Protestant leaders in the U.S. and, and their parishioners, too, were very much in favor of birth control. But, as Griffith describes in her book, the connections between religion, sex, and politics are never as straightforward as they might first appear. In general, Protestants of the 1930s had a very specific view of birth control. They saw birth control as an issue for married couples only. The problem with being opposed to birth control is that oftentimes people were having more babies than they can afford. It was putting strain on marriages, on family life. The way to create stronger marriages was to make some allowance. It did not mean that they were licensing premarital sex. They were certainly not licensing homosexual activity or anything outside of monogamous sex. They felt like birth control would be an aid to happy marriage. And so it's even just interesting to see the different contexts in which different arguments are made, that, that the pro-birth control argument originally in the Protestant context was seen as a conservative argument. It's about preserving the family and marriage. We're still in the first half of the 20th century. And of course, attitudes change across time. So let's fast forward a bit. Protestants didn't used to really think of this much as an issue. In the 1970s, for instance, even Protestants who were still uh, very opposed to homosexuality, very opposed to premarital sex among 
uh, straight couples, um, still weren't at all concerned so much about birth control. But in recent years, they've really come around and, and to the Catholic teaching much more on this. So it's been very interesting to watch conservative Protestants and Catholics realign uh, religiously and, and, frankly, politically around the issue of birth control. An example of this realignment was all over the news earlier this year when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that, because of religious beliefs, the Hobby Lobby Corporation did not have to cover the cost of contraceptives for its employees. The Hobby Lobby case is about several things. It's it's in part about, you know, what what some groups see as government interference or, you know, government overreach, um, not wanting the government to pay for a lot of different kinds of things, birth control just being one. Uh, but for folks who really opposed that Supreme Court decision, they do see it um, very strongly as, as being about contraception and, and women's rights and women's sexuality, ultimately. Though the case was about many different issues, much of the public attention around the Hobby Lobby decision echoed back to the debates over contraception in the 1920s. Once again, when religion and sexuality were both on the table, people paid attention. I do believe that sexuality and birth control issues have been at the center of that. Have, they're, they're emotional issues. They raise deep feelings for people on, on one side or the other. You know, they're, they're very personal. Everybody's got something that's deeply personal for them. So I do think these issues, there's a reason why we see these issues at the center of our political culture wars. They're very effective at, at frightening people into sort of one severe position or or the other. Even though it seems like these severe positions are more and more common, through her research, Griffith hopes to reveal how throughout history, this is certainly not the only way, or even the most common way, that people have approached issues related to sex, religion, and politics. Part of the historical work that I do is trying to show that there has always been a middle ground, that, that just even though there have always been extreme positions on one side of an issue and the far left and the far right, far more people exist somewhere in between on the spectrum. But we know today, of course, in, in part because of our media culture and, and what gets reported as news because it's entertainment and people want to read that or listen to it, that more and more the extreme positions are the ones that get all the attention. And I think that has really pushed people uh, farther and farther into one camp or the other. Birth control is just one of several examples. Heated debates about the morality and legality of same-sex marriage and abortion currently fill the news. In a country so deeply divided on so many issues, Griffith hopes that a look at the history of these types of debates can provide some much-needed perspective. I worry that our society is, is so deeply riven by conflict and hatred I worry deeply about the consequences of that, both for our, our civil society as it exists now and for my children and other children who are growing up now and even what they have to hope for. So I think these issues are very important, both to talk about as a historian, but to really try and engage across these divides as citizens. Many thanks to Marie Griffith for contributing to Hold That Thought. You can find many more ideas to explore on Hold That Thought's website, holdthatthought.wustl.edu. 
You can also search for Hold That Thought on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and PRX.org.